Eden, your threads are amazing. What are you wearing? This old thing, Cambo. Yeah. This actually is some brand new merchandise from Cancelled Movie Report. Yes, that's right. Wow. We've got our own merch. Where could I go to find it? Campo, just hit the link in the episode notes to visit our store. Hello and welcome to Council Movie Report, the documentary podcast series that talks about the best movies that Hollywood never made. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo. And joining me, as always, is actor and comedian, Mr. Eden Porter. Cheers, Cambo. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> and joining us at the end of the episode is David Hughes again. He'll be telling us all about what happened to this project because we are in part two of our report all about the film Isobar. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you do that first. But if you need a little recap, here is a quick reminder of what's happened. The Los Angeles of the future and the year 2016. A brand new train is being shown to us. This is the new lay. So first of all, we meet Sari McCoy. She's the purser of the new lay for this inaugural long distance run. Now we meet Russ Prime. Described as in his 30s with a Bogart-like persona. We cut to a private medical car where Ruby and Scanlon, the two doctors, are. Scanlon is visibly weirded out by what's in the tube that they're carrying. Because there's a creature. Ruby, yes, exactly. Ruby explains that they have to subdue it every hour for 20 seconds by supplying it with a small amount of electricity that's internally stored in the tube. The chamber is opening. The, key, the creature has grown and it's getting out. Look, do you really want to tell the passengers that there's a monster aboard that can shrivel them up until they look like a giant raisin? We request that all first-class passengers proceed forward to the club and observation cars. Our only security officer is watching the medical car, so we're going to need some volunteers. Creature on the loose. The passengers starting to, to gear up, but also we know that someone on the train is working against them. Now, let's get back into the film. So, this is, I would say, an odd Sylvester Stallone project, right? Yeah, a vehicle for him, Sylvester. Yeah, a train to be specific. I know, it is, it is, it's, look, the thing about, what what year are we talking? We're talking 1990. 1990. So, what, he's done Rambo. Yep. But. And done Rocky as well. And done Rocky, so. I'm just trying to think of, has he done Tango and Cash yet? Yeah, I think that's 89. Yeah, okay. So it's like, yeah, that's what I was thinking as yeah, well. No one fact checked me on that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely around there yeah. somewhere. We we say these facts on the assumption that people are just going to let it slide. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely, definitely. Because <laughs> people on the internet never never look back at stuff. What do you think of Sylvester? Um, Sylvester, I actually think he's made uh, a career out of like one thing. I have. A lot of time for Sylvester Stallone. Oh, you've got a lot of time for him. I honestly, because he is seen, I would say, largely as like a meathead. Yeah, right? like hey, well, a good, the... I'm going to fight you. Okay? Yeah, it's right? the and he's made like schlocky action, like like anything past First Blood with Rambo is just schlock, schlock, and the Expendables and such. Uh, but I think he's a really, actually, a really smart guy. Um, mm. Like the whole tale of him making Rocky is very. I was going to say that's what I'm like, familiar like, with that. If yeah, you like saying, no, actor, I, I need to do this. Yeah. Wrote himself a role, refused to sell it unless yeah. he could be in it. 
uh, then started directing them afterwards. Um, had to sell his dog to fund it when brought his dog back when he got oh, God for that. a lot of, and he has written a lot of the scripts of the movie. When he comes on a project, he rewrites them mm. because he, he kind of sees himself as a writer as much as an actor, because that's what started his career. But he's won an Academy Award for well, for writing. writing. Yeah, right? like, yeah, because yeah, I think he is seen as a meathead. But I don't know if that's necessarily him. I think that's just his like his thing, right? His like his image. on-screen image. Yeah, he's like okay, big tough guy. I, I I think I think The Expendables is something different. I think that's a cash cow think, that's sort of gone there. He like, knows what that is. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, well, hopefully. Look, it's not um, stop him and mum will shoot. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> Do you know the funniest thing about that uh, that movie? What is tell? Can we tell me the funniest thing about that movie? There is oft a book that many people look to for screenwriting advice called Save the Cat. Correct. Blake Which Snyder. We know, yeah. Blake Snyder wrote "Stop on My Mum." Oh, shoot. really? <laughs> Now that is a fun the, fact. The book that everybody goes to for screenwriting advice was written by, by the guy. guy that wrote "Stop at My Bubble Shoot." <laughs> yes. Oh my god, Kevo, that's great! I'm going to use that bit of knowledge at my next dinner party. <laughs> Please, you'll be the least popular guy there. I'll clear out the room. <laughs> now you're all familiar with the screenwriting book "Save the Cat." Yes. <laughs> Let's get back into the film. So the the team. All the people on the train have decided to band together. And they've, got and to, they've all got jobs. They've got to look after That's every right. vent and everything like that. That's right. Yep. So Prine actually goes with a character called Tony to inspect the bilge. And Prine is planning on doing... They've really given up on these funny names when they've got a Tony and a <laughs> <Yeah>. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're it's Tony Clobble Shop. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. Okay, good. Do you like that's the only name I could think Clubble of? Shop. <laughs> Clubble Shop. Clobble Shop. That's fine. Pride is planning on doing so from the observation panel. Uh, that's chicken build. But Tony storms headfirst into the into the room and pushes a button to no, open wait. the door. It's too late. The creature whooshes up from the floor in, in this room and the tendrils grab Tony's leg and it starts shriveling instantly. Gibran bursts in and he grabs hold of Tony to stop him from being fully pulled under. Prine lunges past, smashes the button again, and the trap door closes, cutting off the tendril. So the bilge, oh. by the way, is under the under the train. Train. So why did Tony do that? That's kind of dumb. Because he's an idiot. Yeah. He's an idiot. Tony. That's why he, he's a character that gets introduced for this mission. To get so like, killed. Okay. Yeah, straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a red shirt. He's a red shirt. I was going to say red shirt, Kempo. Uh, so, yeah, the, the trap door for the bilge closes, and it cuts off the tendril, and it's still attached to Tony's leg. Tony is screaming. They rip open his pant leg. His entire leg is shriveled down to the shin. The men, they carry Tony into the dining car where Dr. Wainscott, who haven't actually seen much of this script, he begins to inspect. He's very clinical. There's been tissue death and it has to come off. The train begins to suddenly twist and lurch as it's continuing to hit its high speeds. So the tracks are starting to become a little bit unstable. We cut to a bent and warped door at the bilge. The creature has made himself a home. He's been redecorating, it would seem. The pipe has been pulled from the wall with a steady gush of water emptying out of it. All the rushing water hitting the walls of the train is causing it to start to rock. So this this thing loves water. Yes. It absolutely can't get enough of it, Cambo. Well, it, we're going to get even more into its water consumption in just a oh, moment. Okay. So the train continues to rock backwards and forwards and it's starting to lose traction with the maglev rails. The train begins to actually do barrel bombs. So what? everyone's getting thrown around Because the of this bit of water yeah. in, the, in the... It's like a pendulum, essentially. Like, and whoa! And yeah. now it's doing barrel... Oh, wow, that escalated quickly. It's not like continually doing them, but 
every now and yeah, again. Every now and again. The creature sends out a series of tendrils and it locks itself into place in the rotating train. And it continues to lap up the water, which is now bursting from the pipe. It's like a washing machine in there. The train finally steadies a little, and Prine and Sari have just been thrown around. Sari manages to get up onto her feet and get the phone. Bertrand, what the hell's happened? When we rolled, we lost Maglin. One more like that and we'll break up and derail. You have to stabilize us. No shit. Tell him to speed up. Speed up? Are you insane? I know the train's back. It's the only chance. Ugh. The pencil pusher says to speed up. Shit. It might work. Butcher, this is prime. Where's the ballast leak? The rear kitchen car. The creature? And it's between us and public access. If we can cut the train in three pieces, the public access cars, us, a dead monstrosity. The people will be safe till they're rescued, and, and that monster will be isolated. Perfect. Is that a compliment? Ugh. Bertrand, uncouple everything behind the dining car, wait 10 seconds, then drop the dining car. At this speed, they'll roll to a stop 20 miles apart. You're kidding. I'm serious. Do it. Stand by. Better think of a new plan, boss. The electrocouplers got smashed when we rolled. We can't uncouple? Only if somebody wants to go out there and do it manually. I'll do it. Nice thought, but you can't. The manuals have a thumbprint lock for security. I think we're out of luck. Reminds me of those good news, bad news jokes. Yeah. I could use a laugh. The good news is there's somebody on board with a thumbprint the computer will recognize. The bad news is... It's me. <laughs> oh! Who saw that coming? Oh, man. <laughs> the, the, the old, someone has to do it manually. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. classic trope, especially in sci-fi films. You've got mm -hmm. to open the door from yeah. the other side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, we can't do it. Someone's yeah. got to stay behind. Yeah. Someone's got to go out yeah. there. And yes, we cut to Prime now. He's strapping on a harness and applying an oxygen booster. And he's carrying a grappling hook. Hook, who is the, the bodyguard, he holds up the end of the line attached to Prime's harness. Prime begins his adventure on the outside of the train. Speed is whooshing past him, almost giving him an immediate vertigo. But he soldiers on. Essica and Ladna, the two sneaky devils, yep. they're talking huddled in the dining car. In they're, hushed voices, would you say? Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, they're up to no good. Yeah, and they're yeah, aware yeah. of this plan. Are they looking from left to right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's how you know they're evil. Yeah, good. The eyes. <laughs> they know about the plan. And it's a good idea, but if they uncouple the monster and it's left behind, they will fail their mission. And more importantly, they'll bloody lose their bonuses, Eden. What? <laughs> Kevin, what's their mission? Well, Essica says there's been a change of plan, and he nods to the control room. Ladner nods, and they head towards the rear of the train. Prine is making his way back to the passenger car, and he begins the process of uncoupling the car. Success! The passenger car glides off safely into the distance, disappearing inside almost a bit as they're going so fast. fast yeah. Prime begins to make his way back to the kitchen car to uncouple it. Ending this whole situation. Get rid of the beast. So hang on, so they're first class passengers. Yeah. So first class, dining, normal 
normal train passengers. They've decoupled the normal passengers. Yeah. Then they're going to decouple the dining cart where the so they're not is. moving anymore. No, no, they are. The passenger, the the regular passengers have been decoupled. Oh, the regular passengers yeah. aren't moving anymore. Yes, yeah. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah, so yeah, They've first class at the front of the train, then yeah. the dining car, then the regular. The regular car's now gone off. Gone. The back. Okay, I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And now yeah, they the want to get rid of the the car in between, which the monsters monsters on. on. Yep. So we now cut to the creature, and he's created like a Rube Goldberg machine of sorts. He's using like sheet metal and items from the surrounding. He's creating bins to fill up with all this water. And he rips more and more pipes from the wall, and water is now erupting everywhere. We cut to Prine on the outside. He's making his way back towards the kitchen car. He's on the roof of the train. Pookie can be seen pulling in the slack, holding it taut in case Prine should sleep. He's focused on the task at hand. He doesn't see Lardner slink into the room, aim his gun at his head, and shoot. Hook drops instantly. Prine notices the slack in his line. He can see something grinning towards him. It's Hook's body. Oh. It, it slams straight into him, and Brian gets tangled in the court as Hook's body slams into the tracks below. Brian is hugging the side of the train now for dear life, right. losing grip and without a safety net. He slams into the slide of the train, cut back to the creature, and now appears satisfied with the amount of water in its buckets and the soil. His large tendrils reach up and crush the pipes, and the water stops flowing into the the ceasing of water pressure sends the train into one last spin. Bertrand, who is the uh, driver of the train, uh, he, he fights to regain control of the train, and it, uh, it rotates and it rolls, and on the outside, Brian is the internal approaching. We're about to hit the outside of the atmosphere of As the train's rolling, he kind of falls faintly, lands directly into a vent, and kicks his way into the car, into the dining cart, as the train begins to stop spinning. And it shuts behind him just in time, just as they enter the surface. But he finds himself in the room with the creature. What? The creature hasn't seen him. It's seemingly focused on continuing to build a lattice-like nest while continuing to drink as much water as it can force into itself. Prine is stepping backwards when suddenly he knocks something over, steel on steel, clang. A tendril whips towards him. More tendrils. The creature turns towards him, but it appears way down. It's moving slower now. The, the pneumatic door behind Prine, it's refusing to open. He's desperately hidden in the, the number pad. The only thing saving him right now is the fact that the creature is seemingly slowed down by its massive intake of water. Prine rips into the compartment next to the door. He reveals an electric panel. He begins ripping the wires haphazardly. Come on, you Sparks shoot out, fizzing and smoking. Safety video begins to play on the monitors of the room. Each of these is a distraction to the creature as it's making its way it's toward it. it. But nothing is seeming to stop its descent. He notices in the little, um, like, a security area, a gun. He takes the gun out and he shoots into the roof, hitting the control panel, causing a beam of light from the one remaining fluoro to fill the cabin below. So he shut up and they can see the light coming, coming through. Yeah. It nearly blinds Prime. The creature stops. Turns. He can't help himself must move towards the light. He turns. A beautifully grotesque wings lift from its side. Prine is kind of mesmerized by this weird creature. He loses grips on the wires he's been holding and the light goes out again. The creature immediately turns back towards Prine as the doors behind him shoot open. Prine dives through. The doors shut just behind him, severing two tendrils from the creature they shoot out after. So, 
So it's attracted to light it's now. Attracted so to we're light. learning rules. I love it when we learn creature rules. It's taking on a lot of water. Yeah. It's evolving. Yeah. And it's attracted to, to light. light. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any theories so far? So it likes water. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like it's some sort of hybrid plant creature thing that they've made in there because it needs water to like grow. Right. But it's attracted to light like a moth. Let's see. We now cut to Brian and he's reconnected with the others. They discuss what needs to be done as Dr. Wainscott is actually inspecting the severed tendril. Mr. Prine, look at this. I've slipped the tendril here and pulled her over. Looks like the inside of a zucchini. Oh, great. Brian, first you ruined red meat for me and now zucchini? What are you going to leave me with? Tofu? Children, please. These striations here, like an animal muscle tissue, probably incredibly powerful. But with these, see these tubes? They're not blood vessels. Like Mr. Prine has pointed out there. More like something in a plant. Yes, yes. That thing is a plant, at least. As much plant as it is Adam. You know what I did? With all that water it tapped from the ballast tanks. It built a fucking greenhouse. Lattice work, tanks, plumbing, everything. That's... that's impossible. Maybe. But I think it's back there right now, planning on a little impossible family. You're saying this thing is... intelligent? No. It almost had me when the lights went out. Then it turned, like it couldn't help itself. And then these wings fanned out, and it just stood there like it was hypnotized. Of course. It's phototropic. So obvious, how did we miss it? You mean it likes light? It doesn't just like it, it's desperate for it. And when it's near it, all other instincts take a back seat. We can kill the lights in different cars, turn them on in other ones. We pin it down where we want it. When we get to Quebec, the authorities can nuke the motherfucker while it's working on his tent. Prynet is brilliant. I couldn't have done better myself. I just want you to hear this. Who's dead? Oh, Jesus, he had four children. That... That goddamn thing. It didn't do it. He was shot. Shot? You're sure? And the man who impersonated Reggie, he was stabbed. You've got two killers on this train. And one of them is human. What intrigue! Oh my god, Cambo, we've got to we've got to take off and nuke it from orbit. <laughs> it's the only way to be sure, yeah, Cambo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were right. Plant based, right. yeah, yeah. He's building a greenhouse yes, in there. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. good. I like I like the rules. I like they figure out stuff and then using it to. And it does fit in the environmental message, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. true. Like you kill the planet, the planet kills you. Exactly. It's like the happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Sari now tries to get Bertrand via the communicator, but it's just static. Her eyes widen. Prine and Sari run towards the control room, bumping into Essica on the way. He's straightening his tie. The door is locked, but Prine kicks it in. The room is destroyed. Two bodies, slashed and torn apart. Every control panel is broken, bar one. The Mac That was how fast it's going. Oh, the macro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Oh yeah, because it's it's like sound. Yeah, it's like ultrasonic. Yeah, supersonic. There's a hole in the roof as well. Brian inspects damaged cables, lots of smoke, but no monster. Sari can't fix anything. It's too damaged. The isobar is now traveling at Mark II, 1,200 miles per hour. There's no way of slowing down. It's pretty fast. Pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. Pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. No way of stopping in Quebec. The next stop after that is London. And that's the end of the line. So they right. now, obviously, you know, they bumped into Essica. He's gone in there and he's sabotaged so, the yeah, 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 exactly. He's made it look like... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it look like the monster's attacked. Yeah. The team regathers and Prian realizes that the only way to stop the train now is to is to wreck it, essentially. He's like, we, we need to like get this thing off the rails. We now cut to the Quebec Isobar control tower. It tries to contact the train, demanding it slow down. There's no response. The alarms start to sound as the Isobar train erupts from the tunnel, sets off an alarm to sonic boom. Everything cracks, shakes, and breaks the station. Then it's gone. The Quebec team start rapidly trying to communicate with the train. It's a cool shot. Right? That's a cool. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really cool you shot. You can imagine too. it in the tunnel going. Yeah, sonic boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that cool. I, I, like I think that that's the kind of thing that Emmerich's really good at. Yeah, like yeah, you think yeah, of yeah, like yeah. like the early parts of the Godzilla movie that he made. Like, there's a lot of great tension building of this huge thing, thing coming. coming. Yeah, you can yeah. really imagine. Uh, they set off down different cars now, and they're going to start killing the lights and then opening the doors, and they move from room to room. It's very Alien Three. Yeah, it is very Alien yeah, Three. Yeah. When was Alien Three? Uh, After 1990? Yeah. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, They move from room to room doing the same sweep. Lights on, lights off. But they arrive in the kitchen car. Slopping eight inches of water is the creature. Wenscott shorts a wire to the control panel. The overhead lights flicker and turn on. The creature rises and is illuminated by the light. Everyone in the party gasps and recoils at the sight of this creature. Wainscott begins the process of killing and activating specific yeah. lights, yeah. slowly luring the creature where they want. Insane. Insane. Yeah, yeah, you can really picture it. Yeah. They kill the lights completely. Everyone turns on the flashlights all over. The creature is visibly confused and adjusts and focuses. Uh, they slowly lure it forward. Step by step, the tendril comes close, they turn off a flashlight and the tendril recoils. Another flashlight will turn on the other side of the room. Hedda, who is the uh, Sophia Loren-style character, her torch jams and she starts to panic. Sari quickly swaps flashlights with her, and Sari and Prime start playing hot potato, tossing the flashlight back and forth to confuse the monster. <laughs> they throw the flashlight. A tendril darts out and catches it, and it points the beam back at Prime. Oh. The others all kill their lights at Prime's request. The creature is now solely focused on him. He backs up. And he's luring the creature towards a trapdoor that's in the floor of the kitchen. Because obviously that's trapped off to the building. Yep. As the creature lurches onto it, uh, Lisa tries to pull the rope and it goes taut and just snaps. The creature's too heavy. And in the chaos, the tendrils, because the, the doors come upwards. Oh, that's so, silly. So it's on the that's end. a silly design. That's how it keeps bursting up into the... Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, that's how most, I think floor trapdoors work right up not down so you don't well when you have a trapdoor oh yeah i'm thinking yeah, tra- yeah. i'm thinking yeah. yeah just step over here a bit and it's a trapdoor but yeah. yeah the creature's now too big and they, they can't open that brian turns on his flashlight gathering the creature's hey, attention over here. 
and it lures him to where there's an empty security cage. Tex, uh, who obviously did the plot outline for us, has, uh, has written here, amazing, a kitchen with a trapdoor and a security cage. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's, it's got everything. <laughs> but yes, there's a, there's a security cage in this kitchen. <laughs> Sari dislodges the chain that's holding the cage, and the momentum drags her through the trapdoor as it falls over the creature, and Prime is also dragged down with her. The cage slams shut on the creature. The team scrambles, putting chains around the cage and locking the creature inside. They padlock it shut. The creature buckles and rides against the cage, but it holds. We now join Sari and Prian, who have just fallen under the train into the water-filled uh, bilge. And uh, Wayne's Cot is trying to check in to see if they're okay. Prian, Prian, good trophy. Are you alive down there? Technically, I'd say so. Well, bravo. Work your way forward and I'll meet you for cocktail. Roger. Come on, we'll be up top in a minute. No, I mean up top. It's just a coffin on tracks that we've turned into a palace. And we spend our lives going from one dying city to another. But hey, we have stereo and 3D and pre-drought vodka, so it's okay. Stop it! And as long as we stay underground and indoors, we don't have to see the sky and we can pretend we don't know about that big hole they found over the South Pole and, and how one day we're going to wake up and there won't be any sky anymore. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to say it. Oh God, oh God. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to think you said. I've been afraid to think. You know, Prime, I'm a very lucky girl. I'm one of the 20% of the urban population that's still fertile and, and healthy, you know? And I, I can have a baby, but I'm afraid to. Because... Because the future isn't what they promised us. We cut now to the Isobar control room. We see a supervisor talking to his technicians. Anything? Nothing. All the bands who fly are dead. If they couldn't stop here, what happens in London when they run out of tunnel? Chief, you want to look at this? Christ, maglev failure? No, this is the maglev wave, steady as she goes. But this interference, it's not even a watt. And it's almost like, like... A signal? Back on board the train, a massive maglev motivator runs the length of the car as far as we can see. Prime, cleaned up now, is sitting down. He has a stock ticker from the club car display in his lap. Wires lead to the maglev motivators. He starts to tap the keys. Careful with it, sir. It's an antique. You sure this will work? It'll work. When anybody knows this is another thing. Just hope somebody else was an eagle scout. It's Morse code. You got a history buff on board. C O M M end of word. O U T communications out. Sir, they have lost all comms. No. Brakes. No. Controls intend to derail on Icelandic incline. Repeat, intend to derail on Icelandic incline. 
Jesus Christ. Derail on the Icelandic incline? Derail. On... the Atlantic incline. The Atlantic incline! Yes. Get me polar rescue. Now! Step back. Rescue teams will be there. Good luck. Over. Now, before we get into their new plan, something we touch on. Something else we got to touch on. Touch on. How would you be touching on it? Just very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great when you get your um, you get your hero to uh, slap a woman. To take part in a little bit of uh, domestic violence. Why yeah. would? Why is that in the film, Cambo? Why is that in the film? I don't know. It's a. It's a really super forced. Like we ruin the planet. Yeah. Little monologue. Yeah. Why does that end with him slapping, slapping her in her. the face? Uh, it was the nineties. Yeah. Oh, oh, is that what it was? <laughs> but so there, there's an ongoing thing with uh, with Prime. We haven't touched on too much that that he he hyperventilates when he's. He's frustrated. Um, well, his arm starts flapping around yeah, everywhere. Well, yeah. yeah. In episode one, when he calls his boss, he's, he's hyperventilating and he's checking his bio read to make sure his heart's okay. And that's what he's doing there is he's starting to freak out. But yes, his response is, to be clear, to slap <sighs> the woman telling him things he doesn't want to hear. Yeah, it's not great, Cameron. It's not great. It's not great. It's not great. Rewrite. Yes, let's write Stephen now. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Loving most of it. Yeah, one little scene rewrite. By the way, um, Tex has left us a note. Yeah, uh, in the story, just says the slap. Holy shit! Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. We're on the same page. We're Good same stuff, page, Tex. Tex. Yeah. Do you know what? In a weird way, I was like, I had a feeling when you set this up. I was like, I reckon they're going to use Morse code at some point. Oh, really? I honestly did. Even though it's set in the future, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I even I was like, oh. I reckon there's going to be a more... It just feels like the kind of film yeah, yeah. that they're going to be like... I like that, that they've hacked the maglev like readout system and they're, they're yeah. literally like flicking it to make yeah. it... And thank yeah. God someone was an Eagle Scout, <laughs> which still exists in 2016. Uh, yeah. So, but their new plan is they're going to disrail... Uh, they're going to derail on what's called the Icelandic Incline, which is a huge stretch of land... Um, in, on, the, on the Atlantic Incline. Like, yep. it's, a, it's a big piece of icy land. We now cut to the creature in the cave. Bars are bent out of shape. The creature reconsiders its position. It tries a new approach. It dangles from the roof of the makeshift cell. That does it. The weight causes the bolts to start to pop as it's, as it's lowering down into the cage, pulling it from the top. The cage walls the creature It shambles towards the stainless steel door of the cabin. It throws itself against it. The door holds. For now. Back on the team on the train. Somehow Dupree, the big boss, he's managed to patch himself into the uh, system despite the fact that everything's <laughs> been not fried. Got no cons, yeah. And he's ecstatic that the train is ahead of schedule. Well, what he's ecstatic that it's it, out of control speed. He's like, this and is people amazing. Are dead. This he's is like, amazing. This is great. Do you know how fast they're doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've been killing people with such precision. Yeah, great. Prine, he interrupts and he starts kind of like yelling back at Dupree and he caps this off by, he moons him. What? <laughs> Pulls down his pants and he moons the screen that Dupree's on. That's was his, mooning big in the I, 90s? I, I think that's the only time it was big, right? Okay. Like the early 90s. Where it actually was cool. says that he moons him. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, That's so weird. Yeah. Obviously, he's been he's been threatened that he's going to lose his job and jail time and whatever. And then Tex has written a note saying, this movie is the dumbest. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian, he disconnects the call. But yes, he, he moons his boss. Because his boss only cares about the bottom line, Aiden. He cares about the schedule. The bottom line, Cambo? Oh. Oh. Maybe that's how it comes in. <laughs> All I care about the bottom line. Oh, <laughs> show you a bottom line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> Gibran enters. He's been exploring and investigating. He confirms that Lardner is one of the men from the thief in the lab. That killed his... That killed his uncle. The uncle. They start putting two and two together. It turns out Lardner and Essica, they are the imposters. Gibran is sent to go and lock Lardner up. There's 19 minutes until the train is set to crash. And Prian says, that, you know what? He'll go and he'll interrogate Essica. We're going to play Jeopardy. I'll ask the questions and you'll be a Jeopardy until I get one right, okay? Fuck you. I say you're allowed to work for some biotech firm. Probably one of those big international ones. Your head office was doing some illegal biological engineering out of the talking zone. Where no prying eyes might see you at all the all night vivisection parties. How am I doing? You're dead, Brian. You're dead and buried. Oh. Sorry. Must be Prime pulls out something from Eska's pocket. A missing computer part. Now cracked. The motherboard. Shot. We stick to the plan. Something went wrong. The whole place went up. But you managed to save a specimen. A specimen that's so important that you were willing to kill anybody who sees it. Anybody who knows about it. And you bought it aboard the train, didn't you? You bastard. You bought it aboard the train, and you screwed up, and you let the chili out of the bottle. All right. All right, you got it all. Give yourself a fucking medal. Not all. Why is it so important? Why is it worth all our lives? It was over his head. No need for him now. Yeah. You're probably right about it. My God, but... You helped us. We trusted you. And I, you. Please don't feel abused. Everything I did, I did sincerely. After all, our goals did coincide to a point. We didn't want to crash. And we didn't want the Boromirs to eat us. We got the name from George Louis Boreas. The Book of Imaginary Beings. It was a creature half plant, half animal with a ferocious appetite. You see why I had to borrow the name. You made that thing? Why? To save a dying planet, my dear lady. Think about it. The rainforest gone. The plankton all but gone. The atmosphere that isn't sucking out that awful Antarctic hole turning into nothing but carbon dioxide without any plant life to cleanse it. The world needed a new life one with the vitality of an animal and the plant's ability to absorb CO2. Soon, it will reproduce, spread all over the desert, 
turn green again. You mean red with blood. You want to fill the world with these monsters? Then you're the greater monster. Our unfortunately vicious cargo is only passing through a momentary, ungainly stage. It, it, like a tadpole, before they become a frog. Does anyone remember tadpole? It shouldn't have reached this size until we got to the biodome in London. Though obviously there was an error. But when it makes the final change and begins to spore, it will lose any animal qualities and become immobile. Simple. A quite benign growth. Spreading its leaves and roots across the dead wastelands for generations to come! You see, I'm really quite the flowerist. Oh, bullshit! You're doing this to make a buck! Uh, Reggie, you see through me. I confess there is a profit to be made. Yeah. Surely the man who gave his kids our us can understand that. So you'll make the world live again. For a price. One country at a time. One billion dollars. At a time. Oh, come on. I am no different from the people that made the AIDS drug, AZT. They give it away for free? Bloody hell, they did. Fifty dollars a pill. Has anyone been to hospital lately? A thousand dollars for a CAT scan? Insulin. Little diabetic girl? Sorry, Mom and Dad, you have to pay. It's the way of the world. And when the world is the patient, the doctor's bill can be very steep. But what about all of us? We've seen this little scientific breakthrough. If we talk... I'll lose my competitive edge. No, no, I'm afraid in the world of biological research, we'd have to call all of you. An unfortunate side effect. The Icelandic incline! And bon voyage! We have to get into the pods. You heard what? This is an old. He's planning. Ryan, come on! Attention all passengers and crew, attention. Proceed to the nearest safety pod and secure your seatbelt. Stand by for emergency procedures. Did you expect the last episode when the safety pods were introduced that perhaps they would be used at the third act? I thought they were. Yeah, I thought yeah. they were, Cambo. Um, I'm just, that whole time, all I was thinking about was, does the rules of Jeopardy change? <laughs> <laughs> because famously, I, I, Jeopardy, you give, mm-hmm. you give the answer yeah. and they do the question. Yeah. And straight off the bat, he goes, we're going to play Jeopardy. I'm going to ask the questions, yeah. and you're going to remain in jeopardy. So you think what is going you on? Think that been Essica's like retorted as being beaten. I was like, that's not how I play jeopardy. jeopardy. I don't think you've ever seen jeopardy just, in your life. I just, but at least, at least give it the answer and yeah, say, yeah. you uh, you work for like a biodiverse yeah, yeah, coming yeah. to What? Who do I work? What is for? my plan? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that would have been better. Oh, I just couldn't get over that. Uh, what else happened? I I blacked out after that. Well, what we got is something that we love on the show. We love a good monologue, a villain monologue. The yeah. old VM. Yes, <laughs> the old VM. <laughs> the old VM. So this creature is actually designed to help the planet. Yeah, uh, but it has to go through this phase where it morphs and becomes quite dangerous. And he says, "But it will reach a stage 
where it'll become benign and it'll start sucking up the CO2 in the environment and it will help the planet live again. Yeah, which actually isn't bad. No, but he's just he's doing it for profit. He's doing it for profit. Yeah, but yeah. then why do you have to kill everyone on the train? I know he says I lose my competitive edge, but realistically, they're probably way more advanced than anyone else working in that field at the moment. So well, why, you, well, you well, never know. You never know, Eden. There's another biodiverse yeah, yeah. firm working. And like, we're almost there. We need that you last little you bit. You don't have to be just an evil villain, Cambo. <laughs> you can just do it to help the world. Don't tell me. Talk, tell, talk to Dr. Wainscott. Mr. He's the one. Mustache <laughs> yeah. twirling. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yes, they're now hitting the Atlantic incline and the, the speakers are roaring. And Wainscott, he's, he's bit he's a Jew and he's run off uh, through the door. He's, he's with Lardner and Asagur again. And the doors slam shut behind them and they lock Esker, Lardner, and Wainscott communicate with their home base via a briefcase phone that they've brought onto the train. A group of mercenaries are awaiting their call. Time has come for the extraction. Esker reminds them to bring a container for the specimen and portable, high-powered lights. Oh. The mercenary team is fired up. They're ready. They climb onto a helicopter. They set out to the island. Team all climb into the escape pods, only to realize Wainscott has destroyed the electronics on all of them. Well, all but his. The panic sets in. Sari knows there's what. What? Sari knows there's what? What? In a situation like this, where everyone's trying to escape, yeah, there's a manual override. Someone <laughs> <laughs> has to do themselves. Yeah, yes. good camo. Yeah. They set off together. There's 90 seconds to the oh, crash. Sari is oh, only... is there a ticking clock as well now? Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, until they hit the incline where they're going to fall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sari is yelling at Prime to go back to his seat in his pod, but he won't leave without her. She's trying to pull the rank, but Reggie steps in. He's holding a gun at both of them. It's a manual override. Someone has to do it. Prime tries to negotiate Reggie, but he won't hear him. He wants to do this. There's nothing left for Reggie out here. He wants to go out on top. Because he's been soul searching. Yeah, the whole he time. That he's hey, hey, who did we say this was going to be cast as? Jim uh, Belushi? Jim Belushi. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's where we I think this is the only character I yeah, thought yeah, fits yeah, in yeah. most. That's right. Reggie hands Prime his will and sends Sari and Prime back to their pods. His will? Yeah, I guess he just added on it. He had, he was, he had his will with him. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> he's left everything to Debbie. He's going to do the right thing by her. Oh, okay. So he, he's, yeah, this is his big moment of being like His wife. His girlfriend. His girlfriend. There's a huge scene here. Uh, there's literally two pages describing this train crash on the Oh, wow. Okay. You can imagine. Like, yeah, Roland Emmerich. Yeah, yeah, style yeah. big explosion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, in 1990, like a lot of this actually gets called out in the script to be miniature. Oh, so, cool. So, like, it says, yeah. like, this yeah, will be yeah, a miniature cool. scene. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah you can awesome. imagine this whole... Uh, you know, like Independence Day used a lot of miniatures and stuff. Yep. You can imagine this being a big miniature crash scene. We cut to the two choppers circling overhead. People begin to stumble out of the wreckage, strapping on the oxygen boosters to counteract the thin air. And as they get their bearings, the guns start to ring out. They duck and weave. Esker and Lardner are shooting it. They both look towards the creature and it's pinned. It's making helpless, whimpering noises like in the train wreckage. Sorry, wonders, is it dying? Brian thinks, no, no. This is something else. The body splits along its seams. Colour begins to fluctuate at the wound. The final mutation. Tendrils lock in like anchors. The front half of the body separates from the back. This is something I'd love to see Rick Baker do, like, yeah. like practically. Yeah. Because that was his thing. It'd be amazing. I think he may have done the thing. 
This is what yeah. is reminiscent of just yeah. that whole and like, like obviously Werewolf from London, the famous transformation scene, yeah. all done practically. Uh, Prime sees one of the semi-functional blue-lit mags units from under the train. He reaches towards it as a mercenary fires at it. He starts it up. The maglev field fires out. The rotor dislodges from the chopper. So, like, so he uses one of the magnets. He turned it on and, and it the, shuts off. And, and the rotor from the chopper like, yeah, gets sucked great. down. Yeah. Uh, and the, cock, uh, the chopper starts descending and in, in slamming into a mountain away from the creature. But he's, he's taking out the chopper with the big magnet from the train. Pretty cool. Brian approaches the creature. He turns its head towards him. And then towards a patch of green earth, slightly away from the icy ridge that they're against. Brian understands it needs to get to that patch of earth. It makes a clumsy attempt at dragging itself towards it. Prine hesitates, and he moves a little bit closer, recognizing that he's going to have to help it. He talks to it slowly. Easy now. He knows that it's done what it's done because it's scared. And it's okay. Relate. I understand. He didn't slap a woman, though. Yeah, I was going to say, can he, can he relate? <laughs> we've, all, yeah, we've all done yeah, something. Yeah. We've all oh, slapped yeah, a woman. Yeah, we've all done that. <laughs> the, the creature's like, whoa, whoa. Hey, on. man, I wouldn't <laughs> do that. Prine reaches out his hand. The creature wraps a tendril around it. Prine sucks his breath in, but it doesn't hurt him. Uh-huh. Prine musters his last bit of energy to drag the creature. The creature responds almost with gratitude. It sinks its tendrils into the earth and shivers. It begins to split open again at the seam. It's turning inside out. A network of wiring roots expand from its body. They burrow into the ground with frenetic energy, and then it's gone. The ground begins to pitch wildly. Earth exploding underneath. Brian is carried skyward by the shuddering growth. The bottom is, is in its final form. The limbs that were carrying Pran relax and open. He almost falls out. He's standing amidst a huge alien tree. Pods on the limbs open, revealing beautiful flowers which begin to spore immediately, like a dandelion, an explosion of beautiful colours. Seeds? asks Sari. No. Says Brian. Oh. <laughs> Prine climbs down and he slides next to Sari, staring in amazement at one of the only trees the two of them have ever seen. The colourful spores are drifting everywhere. As you can see, the rest of our heroes emerge from the wreckage. And at this point, they've kind of they've, they've subdued um, the villains, like Essica and uh, Lardner and all these guys. And then we see off in the distance as the camera starts to pan out, electric-powered vehicles arriving to collect them. The end. Oh, Cambo. There we go. That is the movie Isobar. It's it's a lot different to what I thought it was. <laughs> I know, be. right? That's what, like, people see it as, oh, Ridley Scott's alien on train, but yeah. this is way different. This is way different to that. This is very Roland Emmerich, I think. Very Roland Emmerich. And, and uh, I know we've mentioned it before. I think David mentioned it, but Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Like, I'm getting huge Poseidon yeah. Adventure, just the group of, like, what are we going to do? Yeah. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the, the classic Roland Emmerich thing of, like, overlapping stories of people that, like, I, I've trimmed it a lot, but. There, there is a lot of like, oh, Gibran and Lisa have a little relationship and yeah. they're learning to about each other's cultures and you know, yeah, that's that's a trope for all those yeah, the yeah, world yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. What happened? What did happen? How, so, as this, I said to well, you, we were a week out. Sets were scheduled to begin the next week. Geiger's got the bloody train in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> when what should happen? But Carol Co collapsed. Oh, Carol Co collapsed. Yes. So now we have we have touches. In the past, in our Crusade episode, but let's go over the broad strokes. Yeah, Carol Co. Pictures 
had a string of flops, uh, most notably Cutthroat, Cutthroat Island. Island. I was going to say that's that was the death knell. Yes, yeah, that was what they put all the money in the world into. Yes, and they ended up filing for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. That's a terrible chapter. I know, I know. it's the worst it's the one. Worst chapter. So obviously all. Uh, in production things were just scrapped. Crusade was scrapped. Isobar was scrapped. These were parallel projects. These are like this sister is... projects. Oh my god! Cameron, the, we've got an Arnold and we've got we've a got... Sylvester project. Yeah, this is yeah being developed yeah, at the same, the same time. time. You've got a you've got a um. Uh, are they both German filmmakers? Where well, is um Paul from? Where's Paul van Hoven from? Van Hoven. Yeah, is it Dutch? Yeah, he's probably, he's probably Dutch. Dutch yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's German enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's that is. There's some weird parallels between an artist and a both being made I know. at the same time. Both Carol Co. Both get interrupted when Carol Co. goes under because of Cutthroat, Cutthroat Island Bloody and Gina Island. Davis. Gina Davis. <laughs> I blame Gina Davis. <laughs> so D'Souza actually said it was a shock to me when Isobar collapsed because everything that I'd ever worked on had always got made. It's a good thing I didn't go out and buy that Rolls Royce. I thought it was a great script and it should have been made. But movies get made not because the script is great, but because somebody likes the script at that point. That was his quote on the project. So, ironically, Karoko's bankruptcy almost gave Isobar a second chance. Because several years after the film company had disbanded, Mm -hmm. there was a bankruptcy hearing for the company. Where they sold off all the they assets. sold off all the assets. Kassar and, and, and Wagner, who are the owners of Carol Co., actually showed up and they they bid on several items that they used to own through Carol Co. Despite like personally. the fact that Carol Co. had left people like millions of dollars in debt. They were trying to buy back projects. <laughs> oh, my God. There's a funny story in Tales from Development how we're about to get David back on to explain this a bit further. But D'Souza himself attended this bankruptcy hearing with the idea to buy back his Isobar script, which he felt was among some of his best work at the time. He said, I think they showed maybe $5 to $7 million in negative cost, he recalled, referring to the the amount of money that Carol Crow had spent on the script, set designs, Rick Baker's creature tests and director's uh, pay or play deals, which would have to be paid out for (gasps) any future profits. Though the bailiff of the hearing said that they were selling things 50 cents to the dollar. So you could get it for half, half price. Day. Meaning that the project could be brought for half the cost of the, uh, what's secured against it. But D'Souza said like, that's too much money. For me. I can't spend like $4 million yeah, it's like, on yeah. this script. At least one person seemed to believe that D'Souza had possibly successfully bid on this because Sylvester Sloan was going through a bit of a slump in his career. He'd had Copland, uh, which he was acclaimed for, but he didn't do that well. Uh, Cliffhanger wasn't the biggest success. He had Judge Dredd, which actually was a Stephen D'Souza script as well. Yep. Get Carter, Driven. He was in a bit of a slump. Where, where in was the, Demolition Man? Uh, yeah, that would have been around the yeah. yeah. But he was in a bit of a slump in his career. And in the early 2000s, he actually invited Stephen D'Souza to a dinner party. And D'Souza recalls, I started to think that the reason I was invited to the party was because they thought that I controlled the rights to Isobar. Oh, what? The conversation turned in a very clumsy fashion to the project. He said, you know, we should make that now. I'm ready to make that now. So no one knew who who had the the rights. And everyone was trying to figure out who it could have been. Because Sylvester got keen on it. 
he got keen on it. D'Souza wanted it back. The guys from Carol Co. wanted it. My God, it was a hot script campaign. I know. So, in fact, it turns out that the rights to Isobar uh, wound up in the hands of two of its biggest long-term fans. Now, David Hughes, please tell us, who ended up with the rights to this script? Yeah, so um, I think it was just one of those things that Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin oh. always... <laughs> um, <laughs> Had, had always stayed in love with the project and uh, you know um over the years they, their clout had sort of ebbed and flowed but they you know R- roland could still pretty much make something if he wanted to that's right eden emrick and devlin emrick has it they, to this to this day to this day so dean devlin and roland emrick have somewhat like split their Probably partnership works, a bit yeah. um they still i think they're in a production company together or something but they don't really work together as much but dean devlin has continually tried to develop this script and he's hired new writers to try and tackle it and he still actually remains optimistic about it getting made. And so Dean, the last I heard, said, is the last time I revised the chapter of the book for the for the next <laughs> yeah. edition, um, said, yeah, I mean, I'm just waiting to get a chance to make it now <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's it's going to happen. I'm just I'm just waiting for the stars to align, kind of thing. So I'm I'm very he's very optimistic about it. It's going to happen. I wonder, to do you, do you think Cambo um, they're going to change the date? I hope from, not. From 2016. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it if they did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was other drafts of it all the way into the early 2000s. But yeah, I'm, wow. I, I'm curious. Do you think that they will ever make this script? No, no, no. They won't make it. David, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, the thing that that probably um, puts me off the most is that if you've got people on a train um, after an ecological disaster has sent them, you know, has made it so they can only exist on a train, then and there are different classes of passengers. I mean, yeah. you've basically got Snowpiercer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. You know, it it is kind of one of the you know it's kind of one of those things where you've where so much of the uh, so many of the bones from that project have been picked not because anybody yeah. who made Snowpiercer was uh, uh, was necessarily aware of Isobar you know I very much doubt it it's just that ideas come up you know that that um, uh, that appear in other things and it makes it so it's it's John Carter syndrome you know so many yeah. things in John Carter of Mars had uh, had been used in sci-fi movies over the years that, that, that John Carter ends up looking like a knockoff of everything that came before, which is ironic, you know? Yeah, I can't see a world in which this ever comes no, out. No, it's not. It's all Snowpiercer. It's, yeah. It, it Like, it's... It, and Stallone... He's too old. He's man. too old now. He's too yeah, old, he's too old now. Who, who would be the Stallone of his day? Um, get Tom Holland in there. <laughs> yeah, it would be Tom Holland. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we hope you've enjoyed this report on the cancelled project that was Isobar. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode specifically, and we would love it if you could subscribe, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you like to listen. That really does help us get discovered in the charts. It would also be terrific if you could leave us a five-star review, much like this very real one that Eden's going to read out now. Uh, said really, really good. I am looking forward to listening to this podcast series. If you care about the movie-making process or just unusual story concepts, this is the podcast for you. 
That's uh, it's from the states from New Three. Well, thank, thank you, you very New much, three. New Three. Old Three. I was getting sick of them. Oh, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> if you also want to support the show, you can come join us over on Patreon. You're going to actually hear. I actually sat down with David for almost like 45 minutes talking all about this project. Amazing you can hear the killer. whole uncut interview over on app. Great get, great get again, Cambo. I mean, it's it's what uh, we I do. do here I on didn't show. think you were that charming. No, I don't. No, you no, can yeah. weasel your way <laughs> into these people's lives. It's amazing. Hey, did we miss anything? And is there a movie that you want us to tackle? You can always get in touch with us via cancelmovies at gmail.com or at cancelmovies on all of the socials. And if there's a project you want to hear about, why not let us know? You can fill out the form in the episode description and we may just give it the cancelled movie report treatment. David Hughes, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us, yes. where can people find you? Well, um, the books are still available. I'm doing a third edition, which is basically all of the stuff in all of the other books. And I'm just going to sort of revise every chapter and put it out. Um, as kind of not a new thing but just like to, to refresh every every chapter so I've been going through I've done about six chapters so far and that's sort of talking to people I did who've come out of the woodwork since and I didn't know they were involved or some of the projects have advanced a little over the years like yeah, the, yeah. The, the kind of isobar one so I've done some new interviews and that's kind of an ongoing thing cool. um, I'm mostly on I mean you know Twitter's being run by a 13-year-old megalomaniac at the moment. So it's difficult to know whether by the time this episode goes out, there might yeah. not be a Twitter, but I'm still David Hughes twit on Twitter. And also, um, it, I don't think it's a, it's, it's a competitor, but I'm also doing my um, audio commentary podcast um, called Rogue Commentary, where basically I'm just trying to keep the audio commentary alive by like getting people to do audio commentaries for films that they made. Um, and uh, the last episode we published was actually Stephen D'Souza on Hudson Hawk (laughs) oh yes so he watches Hudson Hawk and then he tells me why it all went down in a flaming mess (laughs) and uh, he needed to have several stiff drinks while I I put him through the torture of watching it again so that was a lot of fun so that's called Rogue Rogue Commentary amazing well I am Michael Campbell I've hosted and edited this episode and Eden Porter was my co-host too thank you Cambo and we both produced the show lastly we have to give a massive shout out to our voice class which included Mark Sanders as Prime Danny Silla as Sari Jay Zeta as Gibran and Bill Sunderland as Essica make sure you're listening next week with our last cancelled movie of the season (gasps) Timothy Dalton's third cancelled James Bond Project. Thank you so much, David. We really appreciate it. Great talking to you, man. And if you can't wait for Bond, here's a little sneak peek. No doubt you've heard of the Harrier that crashed in southern China yesterday? Why, yes, it's been all over the news. Unfortunate accident. Well, we're not so sure it was an accident, 007. But the minister has put his fellow Nigel Yaplin in charge. So... A little diplomacy is in order, Bond. Uh, well, yes. Naturally, sir. But until then, take care.